of the interesting things when you read the Gospels of Jesus, these historical documents that tell us about the life and teachings and mission of Jesus, is that you come across passages that are sometimes just absolutely amazing. You're blown away at the character of Jesus, and, and sometimes some of the teaching he, he has just leaves us in wonder. Other times, you're looking at a passage and you're scratching your head asking further questions, and, and it's a little bit perplexing. I think we're maybe on one of those latter ones today, although it's going to leave us in amazement as well. The reason why this passage is a bit perplexing to us is not because it deals with Jesus or even the supernatural, but because it deals with supernatural evil. We're going to actually see an extreme example of what it looks like when malevolent, intelligent forces overtake the personality of an individual. Yes, we're going to be talking about an episode in the ministry of Jesus when he encounters someone that was described as being demonically possessed. Now, those of us living in this time and place are a little bit uneasy with these sorts of things. Even though, according to surveys, there's a majority of people who say that they believe not only in God and in angels, but also in a demonic world we're still a little bit uneasy about that. Many of us, I think, are uneasy because there's such stereotypes presented to us by our culture. Whenever I read a passage in the Gospels of Jesus that describe Jesus interacting with what's called the demonic, I always think of that, that scene from where, oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> when Ulysses Everett McGill is asked by his friend Pete, what does the devil look like? And he responded by saying, well... There are all manner of lesser imps and demons, Pete, but the great Satan himself is red and scaly with a bifurcated tail, and he carries a hay fork. <laughs> that's the stereotype, right? Whenever we see characters drawn, that's exactly what they look like. And if that's the image that we carry in our minds, no wonder it's hard sometimes to get our minds around what is going on in the Gospels when Jesus encounters people that are under the influence of a supernatural evil. But here's the thing. In the scriptures, no one talked about the devil or the demonic realm more than Jesus. And so in a very real sense, if you want to take Jesus seriously, and we should, he was the most brilliant and wise person who has ever lived, then we ought to take his view of reality seriously. And here's the key thought. Jesus is going to ask you to sophisticate your understanding of all kinds of things including your understanding of who God is, of who you yourself are, as well as the issue of, re, of evil. I should say the reality of evil. Now, when we look at this world, everything from the evil of the Holocaust to the evil of, of child trafficking, wouldn't you say that it's at least possible that there is a realm that is inspiring this kind of evil? If you're willing to grant that there's at least a possibility of beings working against humanity, then you're in a position to understand something of the worldview that Jesus himself embraced. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, when Hamlet spoke to Horatio and said, there are more things in heaven and on earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. He was on the right track there. And so we're going to call our study today The Supernatural Authority of Jesus. And we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. 
And so let me encourage you to hold on to your seats as we work through this passage, because it is crazy in many ways. And so before we open that passage, though, let's pause and ask God to teach us and help us understand why this is even included in the gospel accounts of Jesus and what relevance it has for our own life and understanding of him as well. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you in in asking for your help to understand this ancient document that was written by this physician, Luke, to help us to understand who Jesus is and enable us to to trust him. And as we look at this passage, we are going to see some things that, that raise questions within us. And this text doesn't answer all of them for us, but it does present to us a Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us to understand more of who he is, what you want us to see about him in the midst of this, and that we would leave this place uh, thinking very highly of him, worshiping him as we ought. So we pray this in his name. Amen. So my friends, the context of this passage we're looking at today is a context where we're asking the question, who is this man? In fact, Luke is crafting several episodes, putting them back to back to back, where this question is first and foremost in our minds. And if you were with us last week, you will remember that we were looking at a passage in which Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples when this incredible windstorm came upon them. And many of his disciples who were, who were hardy sail, uh, sailmen, fishermen, were scared out of their minds. And they awoke, and they awake, how did I put that? They got Jesus awake. And, and Jesus stood up and, and simply rebuked the storm and it went completely silent. And these men who had been with Jesus began to ask this question, who is this man? In a new way that they hadn't before. And so we come to the very next passage. And as we get ready to dive into it, I want you to be on the lookout for two things in particular. One is the authority of Jesus. And secondly, the response or the varied responses to Jesus in this passage. So let's look at Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 26. So we join those disciples with Jesus on that boat. We're told they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. Now remember, Galilee is on the Sea of Galilee. It's on the northwest side, and that's Jesus' base of operation. And so they're sailing across to the other side, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. It's interesting, not only does Luke tell us about this incident, but also Mark the evangelist in his gospel. And he has this interesting detail. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. So there's this man out in the country who is wailing, who's crying out. And I think it's right for us to imagine weird sounds coming from this man. And he's doing weird things like hurting himself with rocks and stones. This is what meets Jesus when he steps off this boat and he encounters this man that the Bible tells us has demons. Let's just take a moment to do Demonology 101 and just do a quick summary of the biblical view of demons. And demons are fallen angels, supernatural beings, who have rebelled against God, just like humanity has as well. We're told that Satan is, in a sense, the leader of 
this band of fallen angels. They joined him in his rebellion. The word Satan is actually a title. It means adversary. So we could actually call him the Satan. He is the adversary. Satan's tactics involves lies and deception. That's his modus operandi. We're told he leads the whole world astray. We look at this place that we live in, and we're like, is everyone crazy? Yes, in one sense, that's very true. Everyone believes lies. Everyone is, is deceived. Satan leads this whole world astray. And Satan hates humanity because he hates God. And humans bear the image of God. There's a chilling passage in John chapter 8 when Jesus is speaking to his adversaries, and this is what he says. Mainly, this is the, the Jewish leadership of the day who are the religious leaders. He said to them, you belong to your father, the devil. What chilling words those are. To have Jesus say that to you. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's interesting. We should note that when we think about this issue of demon possession, we're tempted to think this is everywhere in the scriptures, and it's actually not. In the complete Old Testament, covering a, a large period of time, there are maybe two instances of what would be described as demonic possession. And after the time of Jesus, in the early church, it's recorded for us in the book of Acts, there are two additional examples of demonic possession. But in all of scriptural history, there are these four examples, except for when you look at the Gospels, and it seems like it's popping up all the time. Wherever Jesus is going, he's encountering supernatural evil. And we need to ask ourselves the question, why is that? What is going on with that? One scholar by the name of Norval Geldinghouse put it like this. He said, it was a special phenomenon which was particularly frequent during Jesus' earthly sojourn and thus was directly connected with his coming to destroy the power of darkness. There seems to be this increased activity beyond just what they normally would do in trafficking lies to actually taking possession of people. Verse 28, back in Luke chapter 8, Luke tells us, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, we're told by the Gospel writer uh, Mark that when he saw Jesus, he actually came running to him and fell down at his feet. I wonder what the people were thinking of when they saw this crazed man running towards Jesus and then falling at his feet. And then he, he screams out with this, this voice, recognizing who Jesus is, giving him the divine royal title, Son of the Most High, and he's begging Jesus not to torment him. What is this demon know that we don't know who is this man before whom this demon bows verse 29 for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man for many a time it had seized him he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles 
but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. These people who were around him knew of this man sometimes tried to contain him, to put him in chains, and with this supernatural strength, he would break them. And he's living out in this wild, hurting himself, shrieking with these voices. This man's life, someone who is a a son of a mother, and at one time, friend of others, now finds himself alone in this crazed, demonic state. One commentator, Kent Hughes, said, he was dehumanized, animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful. I don't know what the other disciples were thinking. (laughs) We don't get a a response from them uh, to this incident. But I imagine they had to have been freaking out just a little bit to see this crazed man come and fall at the feet of Jesus and begin begging him not to torment him. Verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So we thought there was one demon speaking. But Jesus asked, what is your name? He responds by saying, Legion, because there were many demons in him. And they're all begging him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, this word legion is interesting. It's probably referring to the common parlance of the day of a Roman legion. A Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers. Are we meant to understand that this man had 6,000 demons living within him? I'm not sure. Maybe. I don't think that would have been a stretch for anyone hearing that name. But we're, we're meant to get this idea of a myriad of demons standing before one son of God. One that they described as son of the most high. They're begging Jesus. This vast array of soldiers of the evil one, they're begging Jesus not to send them away into the abyss. They know something is in store for them. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary said, we can smell the fear of the demons in the way they pleaded with Jesus. Some people may not believe in hell, but the demons certainly do. And Luke is presenting this picture of Jesus for us. And we're seeing this happen. And we're meant to be asking the question, who is this person? Who is Jesus of Nazareth? That things like this are happening right in front of him. Verse 32, we're told, now a large herd of pigs... The gospel writer Mark tells us they numbered about 2,000, was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let him enter, I'm sorry, to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and were drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. I remember when you read this, just what comes to mind is asking the question, what, what just happened here? They're begging Jesus not to, to send them away to eternal torment, to the abyss that they know is waiting for them. And they ask Jesus instead if, if he would be so kind as to allow them to go into these, these swine, this herd of pigs. And Jesus grants them that permission. Why does he do that? 
It's interesting, reading the commentators, <laughs> they're grabbing at straws in many ways. Some people say, well, it, it was illegal to raise pigs. Pigs were considered unclean animals. You were ceremonially contaminated in coming in contact with them. And so they weren't supposed to be there in the first place. That's a guess. To me, that's not very satisfying. Other people said, well, it was better to do this than to release them on the general public. And I would say, well, I guess that's true, but it still is not very satisfying to me. Why did he allow this to happen? And we're not really given that answer in this passage. I wish I could give you more. Perhaps what Philip Ryken said is best. These pigs lived and died for the glory of God. In this commentary, he says, what other herd of swine can claim to have demonstrated the power of Jesus and his authority so vividly? That's probably a good, good explanation in some ways. We're, just, we're not told exactly why Jesus allowed this to happen. But maybe it was to display the insanity that had bound this man. And when he was released from it, and they were given permission to go into this herd of animals, they do. And they do what they always do, which is seeking to kill and destroy. Verse 35, we're told, Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So my friends, I know we just have that horrific scene in our minds. And it's crazy. But what Luke wants us to focus in on is this man who has been liberated. He is now sitting at the feet of Jesus, where he previously was going all over the place, hurting himself. He was naked, and now he's clothed. And it tells us that he is in his right mind. My friends, that's a beautiful description of anyone who experiences the salvation of Jesus. They come before him, and they become someone who is more in their right mind. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But Luke wants us to see that. These people from the surrounding countryside and the surrounding cities who knew of this wild, crazy guy out there who hurt himself, who had shrieks coming from him, who could not be bound by chains, is now sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Well, told in verse 36 that those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. In other words, they're saying, how did this happen? And the people who had seen it said, Jesus did it. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. And so he got into the boat and returned. It's interesting. Earlier in this account, we're told that this demon-possessed man had been seized by a demon. Now these people are seized with fear. And they don't want anything to do with Jesus. Now we could say, well, maybe they were mad about the, the pig issue. <laughs> maybe they were. But we're not given any indication of that. It seems rather they're unnerved with the person of Jesus. There's this man who was demon-possessed now sitting at the feet of Jesus. They knew that this guy was crazy. There's something supernaturally weird about him. And now he's dressed in his right mind. And we're told that they were afraid. And when they found out 
that he had been healed by the power and authority of Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with him. The Apostle Paul, writing in a different context, said these words, which I think are entirely appropriate for this context. He said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the, glory, of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Here's this man seated at the feet of Jesus, dressing in his right mind. Here's this man who had the authority to rule over supernatural evil. And they're blind, and they can't see the glory of Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. They want him out of their sight. How tragic that is. And then we're told this at the very end of the passage. Jesus was getting into the boat, and the man from whom the demons had gone begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away. Jesus is leaving the country of the Gerasenes. They don't want anything to do with him, but this man wants something to do with Jesus, and you can maybe understand why. He's in his right mind. He sees the glory of Christ. He wants to be with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, I want you to go and do something for me. Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. And Mark tells us in his gospel that everyone marveled. We're told in Mark's gospel as well that he went to what was called the Decapolis, which was a collection of 10 cities in the country of the Gerasenes. And everywhere he's going, he was instructed by Jesus to tell everyone how much God had done for him and what a story he had to tell. But he's going around telling everyone how much Jesus had done for him. Do you have eyes, my friends, to see what Luke wants you to see here? Jesus says, go and say how much God has done for you. So he obeyed and he went and told everyone how much Jesus had done for him. You can go, Luke, do you mean Jesus is God? Yeah, that's what he's wanting you to see. That's the case he's making, that God has come and visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. And this person he's setting before us has all power and authority to not only calm natural storms, but also supernatural storms in this realm of evil. So here's an important question for us. Why does Luke record this for us? And and the gospel writer Mark as well. What are they wanting us to see? Why do they think this was important for us to, to get around our minds? Get our minds around, rather. Especially when it provokes a lot more questions for us. Well, first of all, I think they want us to see the authority of Jesus. That's what's front and center here. In the midst of all the craziness, in the midst of all the shrieking, in the midst of the rejection of the people of Jesus... He wants us to understand the supernatural authority of Jesus. He simply speaks, and even the worst of evil entities have to obey. He also wants us to connect the dots between the authority of Jesus and his identity. He was intentional when he recorded Jesus saying, go tell everyone how much God has done for you. So the man obeyed and went and told everyone how much Jesus had done for him. We're meant to connect those dots. And we're also meant to see, (laughs) to witness, the various responses of Jesus. And so let me summarize and bottom line this for us. In Jesus, we find not only our salvation, but also our sanity. 
In Jesus, we find not only our salvation, but also our sanity. A couple points of application here. The first one is this. Let's connect the dots in what Luke is wanting us to see here. He's putting Jesus on full display. He's wanting us to ask the question, who is this man? And he's answered it by saying it's, he's unlike anyone we ever knew. Not simply that Jesus is extraordinary. He is extraordinary. But he has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth given to him. In fact, that was one of the last words he told his disciples after he was crucified and rose again from the dead and before he ascended to heaven. One commentator by the name of N.T. Wright helps us to connect some of these dots. He said, there's no historical doubt that Jesus dramatically healed a good many people who were regarded as possessed. The strange thing about Jesus is that he did what he did by simple commands. No magic formulae, no what we would call mumbo-jumbo. He just told the spirits to go, and they went. That was what astonished people. He didn't have to summon up stronger powers than his own. He just used the authority he already possessed about himself. Luke wants us to see that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's why he's calling us to believe in him, to give our lives to him, to trust in him for our salvation. One of Jesus' close friends would later write these words. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The story we're given in the scriptures is a story not only of human rebellion, but of also angelic rebellion. And part of the reason this world is messed up is not simply because of ourselves, but because of influences that are supernaturally evil. And so part of what Jesus is doing in setting this world to right is not only bringing about redemption for people like you and me when we trust in him, but also destroying and undoing the work of the evil one. One day he will set this world to right at what's called the renewal of all things. And all evil will be completely put aside. We sang this early in the service. I don't know if you caught it or not. In the song, The Mighty Fortress, or A Mighty Fortress, which is a hymn written by Martin Luther. We sing these words. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Jesus, just like he cast out these demons from this man, will one day come and reclaim his creation and he will renew it. And one little word will send all this supernatural evil to the abyss, which they know is waiting for them. So let's connect those dots and understand who Jesus is. Secondly, decide what you will do with Jesus. I mean, Luke is writing this account. He wants you to understand who Jesus is and some of the amazing things that he did to tie that to his identity. But the question is, is what do you and I want to do with this person of Jesus? The response of this man who had experienced the salvation of Jesus in a very tangible way was that he simply wanted to be with Jesus. But other people, understanding what Jesus did, wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. This man was dressed in his right mind. These people who rejected Jesus were meant to understand are, are not in their right mind. Why would they want to be away from this man who has this authority and this power. Tim Keller writes, you don't know yourself unless you know yourself in relationship to God. 
this once demons-possessed man now knew himself in proper relationship with God. The people who rejected him don't even know themselves. C.S. Lewis, in a quote that I've shared with you before, said, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. As chilling as it was to see this event take place, and these demons leave this man and, and go into these pigs and them rushing down the hill to their death, what is more chilling than that is these people saying to Jesus, we don't want anything to do with you. Get away from us. Leave us alone. And so Jesus quietly gets in the boat and leaves them alone. Third and final point of application. Tell your own rescue story. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a story of God's rescue of you. You may not have experienced demonic possession. I hope that you haven't. But each and every one of us has a story about how God is liberating us from enslavement to all kinds of things, including our sin, the fear of other people, for living for ourselves. We have stories about how he is putting us back in our right mind. The Apostle Paul said these words, which we used earlier in our service. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. My friends, you have a story to tell about how much God has done for you. And so go and tell that story about how much Jesus has done for you. My own story is a story about how my heart was full of evil. And before I came to Christ, how that madness had overtaken me. Now, I was just a regular kind of teenager, but I wanted most of all to be left alone. I didn't want God in my life. I wasn't really interested in Jesus. He was an interesting fellow, but I wanted to live for myself. And my friends, that is the height of insanity. I, I live in this world that's created by my creator. I breathe the air that he gives me. By his will, the molecules in my body hold together, and yet I wanted nothing to do with him. I'd rather shake my fist in his face. I never wanted to follow Jesus, but he rescued me. He clothed me in his own righteousness, and now I can sit before him in my right mind. So my friends, Believe afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you find in Jesus not only your salvation, but also your sanity.